Good morning, Church of the Living God. All right. Do you ever think of yourself as the church? You know, do you ever go through the day and go, here I am, that's Safeway, the church. We are the church. Believers. And we have gathered as the church this morning to corporately lift the name of Jesus up. And we've done that by remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through communion. We've done it through prayer and the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together. We're here this morning as the church. We are the church. This building is just a building. We are the church. Now, church... That term, it comes from the Greek word ecclesia, and the definition is literally an assembly or called out ones. And I especially like that part of the definition, called out ones. You are called out from the world. You're different than the world now. You belong to God, so you're the church. Not only that, but we have some other ways that, that church needs to be thought of. And, and one of those we find in Ephesians and Colossians. Paul defines the church as the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. So each one of you are, are a part. You, you can't separate yourself from the body. If you're a believer, you're part of the body of Christ. Now, if you remember, if you were with us last week, Zach and I spoke about the greatest of all miracles. We had a lot of fun doing that. And that, that greatest miracle is the miracle of salvation. Today, we're going to go to 1 Peter, and Peter reminds the church of this great miracle. That's how he starts his first letter to the church. Let's begin this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Blithnia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is how he begins his letter. He's, he's addressing it to exiles. And it's obvious he's talking to believers, and we'll see some more of that as we go on. He's saying exiles. Some translations will say aliens. The church has always been widely distributed geographically. It's composed of pilgrims scattered throughout the earth. We are away from our true home in heaven. So we're here, we're pilgrims, we're just here for a while, we're just passing through, pilgrims, as John Wayne would say. Now let's go on, so, so we've got some of the context here, listen to this description of the greatest miracle of salvation. I love the way Peter does this, so we're going to begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, the, the first time through that, you just go, wow, he's just, he's just nailing it about salvation. It's such a, a great passage about salvation and the things about salvation that are amazing. But I want you to, to think carefully about the last phrase to help reinforce how wonderful this plan of salvation is. Angels long to look. Some description of something that's going on in the heavens. Angels long to look? Keep in mind, Jesus went to the cross to save humans. He did not go to the cross for any angel. He did not die for an angel. He did not die for any animals. He died for humans. It was a human sacrifice for human sin. So there's these heavenly angels and, and they're longing. So what Peter's getting at is the heavenly angels are fascinated with God's gracious, spectacular plan of salvation. They just can't hardly contain themselves. They wonder, I believe, I believe they really do. I think they just go, wow, what is this? What is it like? What is it like to be saved by grace? None of them ever will be saved by grace. So they're watching. They want to know everything about this. And they also know how much it glorifies God. There's so much going on in heaven, in the spiritual realm, that's connected with salvation. Jesus describes something to us in Luke 15, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And I've always looked at that, and I've always thought of that as somebody comes to Christ, and there's this massive, incredible, intense party going on in heaven. Loud music, dancing. They're just carrying on all over the place because somebody came to Christ. They get it. They understand how important this is. That's salvation. Now, Peter begins this letter with this whole idea of the miracle of salvation. But he moves from the description of that 
that greatest of miracles, to what the church, that's you and I, what the church is to do after salvation. We need to constantly be reminded that salvation isn't that place, I'm saved, end of story. Salvation is the beginning, not the end. Salvation is the start of something grand and wonderful. So how, how then do, do believers respond to the greatest miracle? How do believers respond to being saved? So as we go through this morning's passage in 1 Peter, we're going to see seven responses. In, in a way, there's eight, but we're going to have seven, and the eighth one kind of influences the other seven. These are exhortations. Some of them are out-and-out out commands. None of these are written in the Greek in such a way that you can go, well, that's a suggestion. You know, that might be really good for suede. These are commands. These are exhortations. So how do we respond? So let's look at these exhortations. How we, the church, apply the truth of salvation as we continue as pilgrims here on the earth. We begin in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we find the first response. Prepare our minds for action. Prepare here literally means to gird up. The, the word was used sometimes for tying something down, but it was really used for tightening the belt. Okay? And where it really came from was if you were living at that time, you had this long flowing garment, right? You can't run in that very well, although I haven't really tried. I can imagine that that's a good way to face plant. So what they would do, if they had to do a lot of work, if they wanted to run, if they had to exert themselves in certain ways that were very physical, they would take that garment and they would, they would pull it up and they would tuck it into their belt. Okay? So what does that do with the mind? You're they're preparing themselves to exert themselves. They're preparing themselves for action. So the metaphor here is preparing the mind for action. And where that takes us spiritually is get your mind thinking on biblical priorities. That's where it starts. What's the biblical priority today? What's the biblical priority in my work, my family, whatever? And this phrase, being prepared for action, it, this, this phrase emphasizes a proactive action. Believers are to pursue life as they actively represent Christ's church. Everywhere you go, you're the church. You know, it's easy for us to go, good morning, church of the living God, and you'll go, good morning. It's, all, it, it's so comfortable here to be the church. Are you the church today? Oh, I was expecting a response there. Are you the church Wednesday? Are you the church Thursday morning when it really doesn't feel good? All right? You've got to be 
in that mindset of proactively preparing, proactively pursuing those things so that everyone around you knows there's something different about you. You're also looking at life as that pilgrim that Peter's already talked about. Your expectation is not here. Your expectation is what's coming later when Christ returns. How would your day look different if you looked through every day going, is he coming? Is it today? Is it now? How glorious is that going to be? I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's coming and I'm going to be here. Oh, wow. So we're looking for that future and we're preparing our minds with action. And that all comes from biblical priorities. The second response. He says, keep sober in spirit. Sober is Greek, nipho. And it literally means don't become intoxicated. Now, this is church, so nobody in the room has ever been intoxicated. <clears throat> what, what does intoxication mean? It means to lose control of thoughts and actions. And any of you, I mean, I've never been there. <laughs> any of us who have been intoxicated know you lose a lot of control. Right? Okay? So you're losing control of thoughts and actions. Well, well the metaphor here means to not lose spiritual control by consuming what? The world's ways. If we consume the world's ways, it's not good for us. The things of the world can be terribly intoxicating, right? Be honest. All that stuff around us can be pretty intoxicating. It's also capable of poisoning the believer's mind. So the exhortation is that believers are not to indulge in the sinful things of the world system. We need to work at that. Third response to the greatest miracle. Set your hope fully on future grace. Don't have hope here. Not here. Your hope needs to be there. And that set, or in some translations, fix, it's from a military term that describes decisive action in a military way. Decisive. So this is decisive action to live expectantly, anticipating our future, and he says inheritance with Christ. What do we inherit? Well, we inherit Christ, we inherit the kingdom, we inherit heaven, we inherit... I mean, the list is incredible. So is that how we live? And that's what he's, he's wanting this response to be. Setting your hope there on that kind of future. Remembering that we are pilgrims here. Nothing here can compare with the incredible inheritance waiting for us in the future. Nothing here compares. When heaven is described to us in the Word, it's very often... The wording you'll see, especially in Revelation, will be, it's like. And they use those terms, like. You know, it's sort of like this. And the reason they say like is because how do you describe heaven? You can't describe heaven with anything here. 
All of this is going to burn. Isn't it? So the whole idea is, is to fix in a military way. That, that's where we're going and that's what's important. That's where our hope should be placed. Now, yes, yeah, I get it. I, I would really like for life here and now to be better. I had some bad days this week. I, I, would, I would have liked to have had some better days. None of you ever feel that way, right? You, you know, every day is good. Liar. Um, we all feel that way. I would like for life here to be better. But this isn't where my hope is at. My hope is somewhere else. I'm a pilgrim. My home is there. Not here. That's, that's the third response. That's, that's how we live as pilgrims, waiting for what's in the future. Fourth response. He says in verse 14, As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness. Well, holiness, it comes from a set of words, and it really means to be set apart. And in one way, we can say it's, it's like being like God, right? That's what he says, be holy, for I am holy. Okay? We also have to realize that every believer is a child of God. Everyone here and everyone watching who's a believer is a child of God. That's, we're all the same family because we're all children. Are we obedient children? E. Obedience is a trait characterizing every true child of God. So not only are you the church... You're also brothers and sisters. You also share the same parent, God the Father. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you love Jesus? And keep his commandments. This kind of obedience as children of God distinguishes believers from non-believers. Non-believers don't do this. They could care less whether God's holy or not. They don't care. That's not important to them. This is where believers go. Now, saying that, we also have to be real in a certain way because we know that believers have times of disobedience. And we, we struggle with this obedience because we continue to have that sin nature that we just can't seem to get rid of in this life. Paul very clearly teaches this struggle in Romans chapter 7, and I really challenge you to go read that, and, and it'll help put it into the context of life. Sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes we make mistakes. We can go to the Father as children and confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us. 
So Peter exhorts us as children to be holy. And he quotes from Leviticus 11.44. Paul does this same thing. He, he exhorts the same in the same way in 1 Thessalonians 4.7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is who we are. This is how we respond. Who we are is caused by salvation, so this is who we are. This is how we respond to being saved. Fifth response. Verse 17, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, that's important, throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter takes us to this place and he says, fear. Now, now, typically, we go to certain places about fear. You know, what, what do you fear? Um, one of the things I fear would be jumping out of a perfectly good airplane with a parachute. I ain't doing that. Yeah. For some people, that wouldn't be fear. That's not what this means. It's not the fear of spiders. It's not some phobia. The word here actually means to reverence and awe. It, it's a word that's, that, that means showing respect. Reverence, awe, and respect toward God. This takes us someplace as believers. And one of the places it takes us would, would be um, described in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord, same meaning there, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. As we go through life, are, are we all about showing Him respect? Are we in awe of Him every day in all that we do? Do we reverence Him? And he describes in that whole passage, we're here because we're saved. We're his. The other thing about this, this response, the way it's written, this is meant to be full-time, continuous conduct. Like most of these, this isn't a one-time deal. This is daily, full-time conduct. This is choosing every moment of every day to make the choices that reverence and honor God. And that's tough. That's how we should respond. Sixth response, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart. 
Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news, the gospel, you've been saved. Okay, so here, here, here's where you go. Well, what's, what's the response? That's back in verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you've been born again. This is the response. The response is to love one another. Some confessions of a pastor. You know, I've, been, I've been pastoring and leading for a long time. It amazes me in a negative way. It amazes me how many conflicts are found within the church. We are in the same family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're the church. And it just amazes it amazes me that we are continually in conflict. When we are continually in Scripture exhorted to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. This isn't the only place where you find this. You find it all through the New Testament that brothers and sisters are supposed to love one another. Well, what does it mean? We're going to look at that. You know, one of the things, one of the things I've observed and prayed for and desired is that there should be so much peace within the church that the world watching us and the world does watch the church. Don't think it isn't watching. As the world watches the church, there should be so much peace between the brothers and sisters in the church, so that's with us, that they're astonished. How in the world can you put 200 people in the same room and they all get along? It's because we all have the same father. We were all bought and purchased by the same blood. You see, the church, remember, church, the church is all filled with sinners. Sinners bought and purchased by the blood of Christ. If you identify yourself this morning as being a Christian and part of the body of Christ, the only reason that you're a Christian and a part of the body of Christ is because you submitted and believed to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Every believer, every believer is absolutely equal at the cross. Every human being that comes to the cross comes to the cross guilty. And every person that comes away from the cross saved comes away from the cross the same way, washed by the blood. So what Peter wants is he wants believers to remember we all became members of the same family put into the church by God the same way, saved by grace. I wonder how many times in our relationships in the church do we forget the grace part? 
We are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, he says. Earnestly. Some translations may say fervently. The word there means continue in an intensity. It's intently. It's, it, there's this intense meaning there. This isn't just kind of a trivial thing. Yeah, he's my brother. Yeah, she's my sister. No, earnestly, fervently. It also carries with it the meaning of continuation. This is a continual thing. This is moment by moment, ongoing until when? We're to love one another from a pure heart. I really like what Paul tells us about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. There's some different ways the word outdoor, out, out, outdo can be translated, but I like the ESV there. The word there means to lead the way in honoring another brother or sister in Christ. What does that mean to lead the way in honoring? That means I'm going to honor him before you do. I get to honor them. I get to honor them. So we're all about this, this almost competitive sense of honoring one another. That's typically not where we go. We look for different ways we can backbite and criticize. And over the years of pastoring and leading, man, I tell you what, if, if the body of Christ were outdoing one another to honor one another, whew, man, would that be incredibly refreshing. I also have to say that that's something else related to the response before. The world's going to see that. You all get along? Yeah. I love to get along with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to look for every way possible to get along with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Really? I might want to sign up for that. And then you can go, well, here's how you do it. Seventh response. He says, so put away. So in a way, he's, he's brought us to this point. Now he's going to say, so, I want you to do all these things and and here's one of the ways you're going to do it. This is more of the response. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It's quite a list. Let's go through that list. Malice. The word there really, the best way to understand malice from the Greek is it's a general term for wickedness. Put away your wickedness. Pretty simple. Stop being wicked. Okay? Deceit. Literally, it means bait or fish hook. I always think of this sometimes when I go fly fishing and I throw that deceitful thing in the water. Come on. Take my deceit. I dare you. And I love it when they take... Oh, okay. I can get... The word was used and is used in the scriptures to describe dishonest, falsehood, and betrayal. Put it away, Peter says. The next one we're to put away is hypocrisy. 
The word originally identified an actor wearing a mask. The word describes any behavior that is not genuine or consistent with what one really believes or says he believes. Are you being real? Or are you a hypocrite? Envy. There's a lot of this one. Put away envy. It, envy defines, foundationally it defines resenting someone's prosperity or their happiness. This leads to grudges and bitterness, hatred and conflict. You know, I've actually heard people that are upset with somebody because they're happy. I just don't understand why you could be happy. Well, wait a minute. You're just, you're just full of envy. Or, you know, somebody was telling me, yeah, I started fly fishing, and I went out, and I bought a fly rod, and I said, well, what did you get? And, and then I realized, well, you just bought a, an $800 fly rod, and all I've got is a $40. Are you going to be able to catch better than I can? You know, and, and you can even sense that little, well, I wish I could afford that. You can do that with cars, boats, houses, clothing. We even sometimes envy other people's children. Well, they're so well behaved. Well, you don't know them at home. It leads to grudges, bitterness, hatred, and conflict. Put it away. Don't go there. Next one he, he lists is all slander. This describes the whispers and chatter spoken behind someone's back and gossip and backbiting. Have you ever noticed that when somebody's really gossiping about somebody else, it isn't positive? I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, yeah, I'm gossiping about, do you realize how great they are? That's not what we do when we gossip. Our gossip is more along the lines of, do you realize how rotten that scoundrel is? And we do that behind somebody's back. We slander them. And in reality, the word really refers to defamation of character. And we're so easy, to, we, it's so easy for us to go there. But we're the body of Christ. We're, we're in the same family. We were all bought and purchased by the same blood, right? So why should we defame someone? Well, I saw them do that. That's a sin. Oh, and there's no sin in your life? You hypocrite. You can start going through this whole list. Now, it's a really interesting list, and it's a list of put them away. Stop doing this is what that means. And this list is, you know, it's sins, okay, but it's not an exhaustive list. There's, there's more trouble that we, we come up with. But it certainly represents a lot of evil. The strong local church, remember, this is all written to the church, so we can apply it to the local church. We can, we can apply it to FBC. We can apply it to who we are. The application, the response is that we work diligently in these seven areas to not do these things or to do those things in response to this, 
to the greatest miracle of salvation. So the, the healthy, the strong local church works diligently in all seven of these areas. And Peter doesn't stop there because there's an eighth one I want to show you this morning because there's a way we accomplish this because some of this you just go, man, I'm done for. I can't do this. How in the world am I going to, am I going to stop gossiping about Cody who's talking to his wife in church? Thank you, brother. <laughs> and somebody else is envious of Cody because I didn't pick them. You know, raised in the same aisle, and he's going, yeah, pastor didn't, he didn't identify me. This is where we live. So how do we do this? That's where he goes on. This is in chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual, the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's how. This is what empowers every believer's response to salvation. This is what empowers us to do what we need to do and not do what we shouldn't do. This is where we go. Here's what drives the heart of the children of good of God. This is what drives us to be more and more like Christ. This is the power to respond to Peter's exhortation. It comes from the church's continual commitment to scripture. Newborn, he says, like newborn infants. Newborn, literally in the Greek, would read, born just now. So those of us with children, I was there for all five of mine. And there's, there's that, I mean, it's an, for one thing, it's an amazing miracle. And another thing is, I'm thankful I'm a guy. Um, lo love you. Um, there's that moment, right? This child has just passed through the birth canal. That, that's what, Paul, what Peter's getting at. Just born. Born just now, right? And what does that child want? Mama's milk. And what does mama want to give that child? Mama's milk. Right? I mean, this is very basic. We see it, we even see it on the farm. You know, the most important thing you do with a calf is make sure that it finds mama. What happens if that just that born just now child doesn't get that milk. It's not positive. It's not good. We know that. There's an immediate need after birth for proper nourishment. Some people make a little bit of a mistake in interpreting this passage because they want to take us into this place of, well, see, you know, he's talking about weak Christians here. He's talking about infant newborn believers here. That's not what he's doing. 
Peter is not using the imagery of a newborn to suggest infantile weakness. That's not what he's doing. What he is doing is he's using one of the most basic, familiar images to human beings to convey the meaning of essential life-giving need. There is a need being expressed here in a very fundamental way. This is the idea of relentless, crucial, life-dependent pursuit of the truth that's only available from Scripture. Don't, don't think he's talking about weak Christians. That, that's not what Peter wants you to think. He wants you to think you got to have nourishment. And not only that, he wants you to long for it. What does that mean? This is, comes from a, a, a verb that it means to, it's a command. So he's not suggesting you do this maybe once on Sunday mornings. This is a command for believers to strongly desire or crave pure milk. You can't do without it. You've got to have this. Believers are to crave what is unmixed. He says pure milk, unmixed and pure. What's going to provide real sustenance? Psalms 19, 8, 9, Psalms 119, 140, both places there say God's word is pure and clean. The word is the source of pure spiritual milk for believers. Pure. Where else are you going to find pure truth? Where else are you going to find anything that's purely nutritious for you? Fox News? CNN. isn't going to happen. Something else that we need to notice here. Peter's wanting us to long for it. He wants us to have that, that craving for the Word. But he does not command the believers here to read the Word, study the Word, meditate on the Word, teach the Word. He doesn't say anything about preaching the Word, searching the Word. He doesn't even command us to memorize the Word. Yet all of those are vitally important if we're going to grow in our spirituality. They are essential for spiritual health and growth. Do you hear me? Peter's not mentioning them, but we need those. You need to memorize. You need to study. You need to be around good preaching. You need to meditate on the Word. But Peter doesn't go here. Why? He's being far more a foundational Believers need this deep craving for the word to be the driving force for those other disciplines. You really want to be about memorizing the word or meditating in the word, teaching the word, any of those other disciplines? Then you got to start by craving it in the first place. If you don't have any desire for God's word, you're not going to memorize it. Go for it. It's the pure milk of the word. I see this in what Satan to was told in the wilderness. Jesus is there and this whole thing is going on between Satan and, and Jesus. And Jesus answers Satan. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is, this is so vital. This is, this is all about strong church. Well, that means I want strong people, strong church, right? That's who we are. The reality is that we are relentlessly surrounded in our culture by junk food. Our culture's output of informational junk food through forms of media is just astonishing. Do you ever notice that? How much spiritual junk food do you take in every day through whatever? This junk, it doesn't, it doesn't cause you to grow. It, it actually causes spiritual malnourishment. And it dulls the appetite for, for genuine spiritual food. Sometimes these things really hit me hard. As a pastor, as a, as a leader in the church, I... I really desire that believers deeply commit to regular nourishment from God's Word. One of the things that drives me in that way is understanding the nourishment part. God's taken me a lot of places in the world, but two of them in particular come to mind when I talk about nourishment. One was in, in Guatemala, and one was in India, and it was hideous. What about those? Those are two places where went into some villages in Guatemala and India. And what do you see walking around in the villages? Are these little kids with these bellies? And their, their, their necks look kind of funny and their skin color is different. And they got that distended belly of malnourishment. They're starving to death. It's disturbing. It's one of those images that I've, I've been allowed to see as I've traveled around and as God has taken me different places and it's so disturbing that, you know, could you erase that, God? And he doesn't. The malnourishment is, is hideous. And I remember being in a, in a village in India and almost all the children in this village were malnourished, you could tell. And some of them, it, it, it is indescribable how disturbing it was. We also knew from talking with some people in the village and what we all understood about what was going on. Here we are, we're talking with this little girl through an interpreter. She probably didn't live to the next day. While she's talking to us, she's dying of malnutrition. And nothing's going to save her. Horrendously filthy water and nothing to eat. That's malnourishment. This hits me hard. I want it to hit you hard. Because in similar ways, for me, I, I grieve sometimes seeing believers in the church who are spiritually malnourished and underdeveloped. That bothers me. It's one of the reasons I do what I do. 
All believers should be motivated by the opportunity to grow strong and mature in Christ. That should be our motivation. Why? Because God saved us. Because he's the creator of the universe and he wants us and loves us. And there isn't anything that we could do really that glorifies him more than to just go on, I want everything possible that you have. Give me everything, God. And he goes, okay, I will. It should be our strong motivation to be strong and mature in Christ. To enjoy the, the blessings that come with that and, and the usefulness. Do you feel like you're useful in the body of Christ? If you don't, maybe you're malnourished. We need to be nourished. If you're going to respond to the, those seven responses, you got to start here. You got to start by getting in the Word. I want to finish with how Peter closed his second letter. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge. Where are you going to find the grace and the knowledge? In the Word of God. Continually maturing believers. That's foundational to a healthy local church. So I ask you, are you maturing or are you malnourished? Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we have trivialized your word. Forgive us when we have been intoxicated by the things of the world. Holy Spirit, give us a hunger for your word and for truth that we, we just have to have. And Father, help us to put away those things that we need to put away and help us to develop those things that we need to develop. Strengthen us as the church. And Father, thank you that you revealed yourself to us in the written word. Thank you that you have always had a plan and that plan was for Jesus to die. Thank you, Father. Oh, Father, thank you. And may you find in us a people who want to be healthy and growing and ready for whatever comes our way as pilgrims in this life. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Amen.